The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones. And I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm talking with Marion Partington. Marion was born in Oxford, United Kingdom in 1948. She's a British author of the acclaimed Guardian essay, Salvaging the Sacred, published in 1996 and 2004, and If You Sit Very Still, published in 2012, um, and 2016, which was chosen by Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, as his book of the year for the Times Literary Supplement and the New Statement, Statesman in 2012. Marion's always been engaged with healing in her work as a homeopath for 30 years, in prisons and schools as a storyteller and for facilitator for the Forgiveness Project, and since 2005 as a or, Uh, working for the Forgiveness Project since 2005 and as a writer. In 2015, she was a community sabbaticant at the Center for Studies in Religion and Society at the University of Victoria, British Columbia, Canada for three months, researching into Indigenous approaches to traumatic loss, restorative justice, and reconciliation. She continues to engage with the territory of traumatic loss, brutality, and the restoration of the human spirit within and without. Welcome, Marion. Hello, Cheryl. Very nice to have you today and to talk about your beautiful book. Um, Obviously, you have a lot of the poet in you, and it shows in the book, and I really, really enjoyed that, reading it even though the subject, which we'll get into in a minute, is, is so painful. Can you share with the listeners some of um, what happened with your sister Lucy and how you came to write this book? Yeah, sure. Well, um, in 1973, um, I was home for Christmas with my sister Lucy and my two brothers at our mother's home. And uh, that stage I was 25 years old and Lucy was 21 and um, we were both studying English literature at university at the time and on the 27th of December 1973 she left the house to visit a friend in Cheltenham a nearby town and um, she left her friend's house to catch the bus home that evening and was never seen again My mother had gone to wake her up in the morning. She was going off to visit our father that day and um, she hadn't come back. 
um, we'd all also been out that evening and Lucy was due to be back first. So we, she presumed she'd just come back and gone to bed. So that began a very long haul of what I call the years of not knowing, which went on for 20 years. And it wasn't until, until 1994 that we began to hear about bodies in a place called Gloucester, a road called 25 Cromwell Street, where um, they were beginning to dig up bodies. And um, there were 12 so-called victim, West victims that were recovered, the remains of, and Lucy was one of them. So that was where the next step of the journey, what my father called the last chapter, began. Um, when I hear 20 years uh, of, of not knowing, that's really unimaginably long um, to, you know, I don't really believe in closure, but I do believe in knowing, <laughs> you yeah. know, to, to live with not knowing for that long seems yeah, crushing. Yeah, it was really, it, it, it was it was really hard to find a way to go on living, but we all did. Um, but I don't think it was until we found out what had happened, until it was confirmed that Lucy was dead, because in a way, we all had our different ways of dealing with that time. But um, it was really hard to talk about it as a family. But it wasn't until we it was confirmed that she had been murdered, um, that I began to face what I call the years, the years of not knowing. I, I called some part of that the frozen silence. And I realized as that began to thaw that there were layers and layers and just how much of my life had sort of been on hold in a way that wasn't particularly conscious but became more conscious and that was part of the big part of the healing process was to allow those layers to thaw but it didn't mean that the 20 years was an impossible time I was very lucky to have um, four children one of them a stepson who actually now lives on Vancouver Island um, and, a, and a very lovely husband Nick so and I and I had a very fulfilling life as a homeopath I spent many many hours listening to stories from other people to listening to their painful stories and and helping them to move towards their own healing mm. so having done that I knew that I this was I had to make my own journey which was from my experience of being with others on a healing, on their journeys towards healing, was very much about needing to feel the pain, to face what had happened, and to trust that there would be a way forward, because it felt so important that it wasn't something that I hid or something I tried to avoid, because of my own children, really. I felt it was very important to be able to speak of this and to be able to grieve and be, to be able to have ceremonies that honoured Lucy's life. And it led in very unexpected directions, but I feel the most 
the deepest part of my healing process was the dreams that I was given because they were like something from my unconscious speaking that needed to be I needed to pay attention to them because I had made a vow to try and bring something positive out of what had happened to Lucy something that we could all learn from and I didn't really know what that was but it it was a very clear sense of direction that I hoped to follow and it did turn into a vow to try and forgive the people who killed Lucy eventually but it's been a very long journey. <laughs> Absolutely. Maybe this is a yeah. good moment for you to um, share the uh, share a dream uh, sequence from your from your book. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, this is the uh, this dream. I'll just read you a little bit from the book. Um, but this dream I had lit four months after Lucy had disappeared in 1973 and it became deeply important. I'll read it. Lucy, four months after you disappeared, I had the first dream. You had returned and I asked you where you had been. You said, I've been sitting in a water meadow near Grantham. Then slowly, with a smile, you said, If you sit very still, you can hear the sun move. This image filled me with a profound feeling of peace, the kind that passeth understanding. This feeling remained with me when waking. It lasted for a few seconds. It has remained deeply significant and real. Did you speak to me from there? When he was three years old, my son Jack came came into our bed one morning and said, you know that dream we had last night? He then told me in great detail about our dream. I wonder, is there a place where we all share the same dream? Is that the place where what has been dismembered can be remembered? Is it the place where you can hear the sun move? This dream reminds me of the tone of your voice, Lucy. It has burned at the core of my spiritual quest. Such a, such a, you know, dreams, of course, can be, be gifts. I'm, I'm actually in conversation with someone who's researching dreams about people who have, who have died. And, um, They're they're a different kind of dream sometimes. I don't know. Do you know if she was, in fact, living or dead at that point when you had that dream? No, that was the whole point. Well, I didn't. We didn't know for another 20 years. Right. But I I mean, looking back now, do you know? Did I know at the time, (laughs) you mean? No, no. (laughs) Do, do, Do you looking back? I don't know if you ever knew 20 years later the timeline on when she actually died, died. oh oh yes yeah. she she was already dead I had that dream four months after she disappeared and she died within a week of her disappearance but the details around that we'll never know because uh-huh. um we do know that what because it, some- it, it 
it does have that quality that I've heard from so many people of the kinds of dreams people have when someone when they've lost someone. Um, that sense of presence, I guess, is what that, I'm. Yeah, what, well, what I'm I've really resonating I, with. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm really fascinated in the area you're looking into as well because it's it for me that dream um, helped me so much because. The, the sense of peace that I had, it, it, I felt that if that was the place that she was within herself, you know, whether she was dead or alive, somehow it didn't matter because it was really touching on a place of eternity. And um, we used to, because we both studied English literature, we both loved words. And one of our favorite poems was T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. And mm. we used to mute we used to muse together about a phrase in that that was talked about the place where time intersects with eternity and and about the still point of the turning world. Well, that dream really touched on that realm for me and it felt that it was where we could meet somehow. And I know having from my reading about dreams, I think it was the Greeks who saw dreams as the meeting place of the living and the dead so that made absolute sense to me when I read that and um, also the fact that Carl Jung placed so had this lovely sense of the collective unconscious that somehow resonated with this these thoughts I had about do we all share the same dream you know is there a sort of depth within the human spirit that where we are all connected, whatever we've done, whoever we are, that I suppose it's what the Buddhists might call our true nature, the place uh-huh. where yes. we are closest to our human potential. One thing that really, I, I felt as if I, I got to know Lucy through reading about her, yeah. And uh, she she had quite a transcendent type of personality, I would say. Um, she became a Catholic out of, I don't know what your religious background was, but she converted to Catholicism out of what seemed to me the best of it, sort of this deep spiritual quest kind of place and the appreciation of ritual and... Does that fit your perception of her? Yes, it took, uh, well, at first, um, yeah, well, just to say that actually we didn't have a a formal Christian upbringing, but our great-grandparents were involved in the Chinese inland mission. So, but my grandmother had rebelled against her religious upbringing, so we didn't have a formal religious upbringing, but... Yes, the, the choice, Lucy's choice to become a Catholic has recently, I've recently been reflecting on that a lot because I was asked to speak in, uh, in Northern Ireland um, at the end of a, during a novena, a, a nine-day um, uh, sequence of prayer within the Catholic community. And I stayed there for the whole of the nine days and joined in. And it was very moving to me to kind of have a sense of of why Lucy had made that choice. I mean, she was quite, 
self-effacing about it and used to say, well, it's rather predictable that I would choose the Catholic faith because, but that completely went with her deep interest in the medieval period. That's what she'd hoped to go on and study at the Courtauld Institute of Art. Mm. In fact, the night, night she was abducted, she had a letter that was never posted, which was her application for a postgraduate course at at the Courtauld Institute of Art. So I have kind of connect with her Catholic path in a deeper and deeper way. And especially this year, the, um, the Pope actually declared this as the year of mercy. So I've been invited to speak in various Catholic contexts, which was quite a another surprising um part of the journey you know absolutely having 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 written this book and put it out there it's amazing what keeps coming in you know I just find myself thinking at first I thought oh you know good I've done the book I'll just be able to say oh just read the book you know but it doesn't work (laughs) like that you know and here I am talking to you in California. So absolutely, <laughs> and let's let's return. I'm real. I'm very captivated by this this idea of being invited into. You know, of course, she was 21. Who knows where she would have gone in a lifetime? Mm-hmm. But but the imprint on you of that choice of hers is very compelling. Uh, listeners, mm-hmm. you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to find find every link that you need. And to find Marion Partington and her book, you can search If You Sit Very Still at Amazon or contact her publisher at k-a-t-e-l-y-n-n dot b-a-r-t-l-e-s-o-n at j-k-p dot com. That's Caitlin Bartleson at j-k-p Dot com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Addiction affects so many of us on a daily basis. But it's not just the individual who is affected, but their family, friends, work, and school life, their homes, relationships, and so much more. Listen to people who have been there and lived through it. Listen for Shattering the Stigma with Mama Dukes and Frankie, a mother and son team who have faced addiction together and continue to fight today. Shattering the Stigma can be heard live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. 
This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Marianne Partington, whose sister was killed by a serial killer. She remained missing for over 20 years before her body was found. And before the break, Marianne, we were, we were talking about your sister Lucy's uh, decision to convert or really to embrace Catholicism, since you say you weren't particularly raised in a religion, so she wasn't going from one to the other. She was kind of claiming something for herself. Um, and you were talking about how that's led in some interesting directions for you. I, I was fascinated by that, that, that um, you're being asked to speak uh, in, in, um, because of the Pope's you've been asked to speak about um, your, your life and your uh, grief with Lucy and where that led for you. That's fascinating, yeah. isn't it? It is. Well, I, I would add, too, that um, and it, for me, a very significant choice that I made 20 years later. Lucy chose to become a Catholic in her last year at university. Um, and five weeks later, she was murdered. And that really had an effect on me at the time of rejecting any idea of religion. Mm. Um, you know, I just couldn't and, and various of her Catholic friends said quite insensitive things like, you know, God takes the best young. And uh, it uh. just felt, it felt, you know, terror. I, I couldn't connect with it at all. But eventually I chose to become a Quaker, which may seem quite a different path for Lucy. But I chose that five weeks before, before we found out what happened 20 years later. So we'd both chosen a path that we could never explore together. It would have been fascinated to know what this conversation would have been. And um, I, I miss that um, opportunity. But in a strange way, it's been going on anyway, maybe just in my imagination. But um, I, from so from a Quaker perspective, um, we just... Our, our worship is we sit in silence for an hour, what we call waiting on God. And that's quite a huge thing to do. But the silence is really important to me. Um, and, that, and that helped me during my healing to just have that prayerful silence with others was so important. But I also chose to begin to go on Buddhist retreats my husband's a Buddhist, and and really, very soon after we found out what happened to Lucy, we had booked onto a retreat before we found out. We both went on our first retreat together, and that's been another aspect of my spiritual path. Um, so, and that and that gave me an opportunity to have extended periods of of shared silence. Um, silence has been a huge important part of my healing process being with what arises within me facing it you know accepting it letting it go but allowing the feelings allowing the thaw um but this whole business of the catholic strand has really only come this year mm. and it's it's been quite disturbing in a way because another thing i've done is um 
I have a lovely group of women friends and we've been going to a, a, um, a Franciscan monastery three times a year for, for over 10 years. And, um, and there we, we can join in with the prayers. And again, it's a silent, mostly silent order. Um, and so there was something and that, so something about the prayers and the words and the readings, you know, the Christian um, liturgy, which I avoided as a Quaker. I didn't really want to be involved in anything that meant I had to say something that I didn't believe. <laughs> um, so I, I just wanted to have an experience of whatever God might be. And, and I'm very clear that all the language around religion is so what I call barnacled. I call them barnacled words. You know, they're just encrusted with so much um, piety at, it, at its worst, really. They've become less meaningful because they're used in ways that, that aren't fresh or alive. You know, when people talk about sin, forgiveness, um, repentance, all those words, to me anyway, had, didn't, didn't have a resonance. But I've always loved ritual and ceremony. So being in the Catholic Church in, in Derry in Northern Ireland for nine days with a lovely group of local Catholics in a place where there was a terrible massacre known as Bloody Sunday, which was the sort of yes. start of all the troubles in Northern Ireland, to be there in that context and to speak in that context was, was huge for me. Um, and I had chosen to really immerse myself in the Catholic practice while I was there. And so I, I learned a lot more about the Christian path and I had actually been I had chosen to be baptized in 2012 in the monastery that I go to because um, there was something about the the Eucharist that began to have a meaning and I felt this whole whole again it's the whole thing of the interconnectedness of life that we are all connected and and so when in the Christian path of the, where the Eucharist is part of the ritual, if you're, as a Quaker, we don't have any external forms like that. But in this context of the monastery, it began to resonate. It was something about, you know, sharing the peace that passeth understanding because it went back to the original dream and it was strange that when I had that dream even at that time when I wasn't in a Christian context at all I still used the words that the dream was the peace that passeth understanding so it's very strange how this religious language is there despite well, in, in my experience, it's sort of come to life in a way. And so I'd made this vow to try and forgive the Wests at the end of a Buddhist retreat. Um, and that had really come from a, an insight I had on the retreat of, of the amount of unresolved pain within me that goes back to what I was talking about, this frozen silence. 
you know, as it began to thaw, I thought, I saw very clearly that the different choices I had with what to do with this pain. And I realised that one one way of it, and it became more universal in a way, I kind of connected with the fact that we've all got this unresolved pain and how we how we resolve it, what we do with it, makes the difference between creating harm and violence and creating peace and love. Mm-hmm. And, and so I realised that a very common thing that we do, and we see it all over the world, we see it in all cultures forever, is the whole business of dumping it on others, wanting to hurt other people so that in our, you know, this is the sort of realm of vengeance and hatred and escalating violence. Yes. And as a Quaker, the thing that really attracted me about the Quaker path was its complete commitment to non-violence in, in very, in every way. So that a lot of, I felt like the Quakers were putting their money where their mouth was, that it was actually this huge, deep commitment to peace, which involves being in areas of conflict, investing in them, you know, financially and spiritually and practically to actually engage in a way that is about living a non-violent path, but how difficult that is. And so I began to have to face my own violence, really, Mm. that I, you know, be be more aware of it. So there's this dumping it on others, which is the... um, the you know the end result of that can be murder the most extreme form then there was the path which would be allowing it to eat away corrode my spirit to make me to take me into a place where there was no way of going on and that the end result of that would be suicide and um i saw a lot of that when i was in um, connecting with the First Nations culture, the terrible epidemic of suicide amongst those yes. people, and then the slow third, and fast, slow and fast. Absolutely, uh, you know, I think that absolutely. The addic- yes, could you? Yes. I think it would be a great moment to share the years of the 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 the, the not knowing the, yeah. the little place in your book about that frozen silence yeah. that you're talking about. Absolutely. Here we go. We went crooked, deformed, by the secret of a missing sister. How do you go straight when you wait with your secret, wait to know? The first year of not knowing was full of crookedness. Avoid, avoidance, avoid dance, hopping on one leg. It is very difficult to find the words or an image to describe the pain and disorientation of one sister simply disappearing without trace for 20 years. It's a bit like trying to search for a body which is trapped somewhere beneath the frozen Arctic Ocean as the freeze continues and the ice thickens and there is no sign of a thaw, no sign of a seal hole the features of that world become distorted as the seasons pass and the ice builds up and you have to go inside to get warm if you want to survive and carry on but you have to be ready for the thaw for the rescue 
somewhere inside I became disconnected from the past and disabled by the future. Part of me was stuck in the past. Part of me was terrified of us all dying and never knowing what had happened to her. There was never a chance to honour her life. Hmm. I'm thinking of um, the rituals of of death, however inadequate in in uh, sometimes in my culture anyway. Uh, you know, not a ton of crying or screaming or <laughs> you know outbursts, but still some way that. Um, the passing is noted mm-hmm. and to be without that, because how can you note it? it I would imagine there's almost a, a, um, a sense of superstition maybe uh, that would prevent you from actually noting losing Lucy's passing without the knowing what Absolutely. happened yeah you've hit the nail on the head there <laughs> it what it was very difficult I think that was the most difficult part of the not knowing was that we couldn't really find a way to talk about it and um, I did used to always try and meet my meet up with my mum on Lucy's birthday and we would try and talk about her but um it, it wasn't a yes there was a soup there was an awful sense that if we talked about her as if she was dead then there wasn't any hope that she was still alive and Mm. strangely my mum really it was really shocking to me when she told me that for all the years of not knowing she said something quite extraordinary she said um as each year went by um she felt increased her her sense of hope that she was still alive so that was the way she kept going um but it was becoming intolerable really not being able to to mark her you know have a sense of honoring her life that was the thing so I suggested that we we planted a tree in memory of her and we did do that 20 years after she disappeared and a couple of m- three months, actually, before we found out what happened. It was as if and my mum had been gathering all Lucy's poems together because she wrote poetry. So it was almost as if we were preparing to find out. It's extraordinary, really, if I think about it, because the timing of it and Absolutely. the way it happened. But then... I remember my daughter, when we planted the tree, of course, none of my children ever met Lucy, but they did know that they had this missing aunt, although there again, I didn't talk very much about it. Um, But I remember when my daughter found out, because we have a lovely photograph, we used to have a pony called Felix. Could we, could we, um, it's time for a break and I'd like to come back to that story when we come back. Um, uh, 
because that's that's worth more time your children and their relationship to Lucy. Um, so let's let's start with that when we come back. Time for our second Bye. break. You can find me at weatheringrief.com or the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Marion Partington, you can look for her book, If You Sit Very Still, at Amazon or contact her publisher at caitlin.bartelson at jkp.com. Back after the break. <laughs> Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Marion Partington, author of If You Sit Very Still, about the death of her sister and the discovery of her body 20 years after her death. And before the break, we were talking, uh, you were beginning to tell a story about your children uh, that you had, well, two things, that you had a, a tree planting for your sister just a few months before her body was found. This interests me a lot because... Um, I hear these these stories of synchronicity uh, often enough that I, I remain in wonder. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, that is one of those experiences to so close to you. You said you felt somehow looking back that you were beginning to prepare. Um, but you were telling a story about your your daughter, I think, in that um, mm-hmm. in that ceremony. Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, well, I was actually going back to the when I first told my daughter about Lucy, which was oh. much earlier than that. And um, I've got this lovely photograph, a black and white photograph of um, me and my two brothers and, and Lucy and our pony, Felix. And I'm standing there, the big sister, holding the pony and sitting on the back of this rather shaggy, muddy old pony <laughs> were my <laughs> siblings. And... Um, and uh, my daughter looked at it and she said, 
uh, she could see my brothers. She said, but who's that person? And so I told her that it was my sister Lucy, but that she had disappeared. And um, and it is in the book, actually. I do, do write about um, her response to that. But also, um, when we began to find out what happened to Lucy, my daughter particularly was very um, encouraging of me finding words to speak about it and to write about it and um and yet it was difficult for for them too you know because my and my my son was 19 at the time and my other son was 11 and my daughter was 16 so it was a huge challenge to me to find a way forward in which I could be honest but to to my own process but also to be, um, to to find, try and find a way that would be inspiring rather than um, stuck in a place of bitterness and anger, mm. and yet, yet, I think I was telling you earlier about these four places that I saw on the end of the retreat that were ways forward with the unresolved pain. And um, the other two, I'd, I'd mentioned the sort of extremes of murder and suicide. And then the yes. third one was was denial, which, of course, from my experience as a homeopath, I saw a lot of terrible physical disease coming from people who were unable to face or speak about or acknowledge grief, really. Grief seemed to be at the root. Unresolved grief was often at the root of physical disease in my experience um but the fourth way the o- the only way out seemed to be this this path towards forgiveness and um but i had no idea how that could come about or what it would mean really but i i made a vow to try and forgive the west because when i thought about this possible way out or this possible way forward, it seemed suddenly it seemed like the most imaginative, creative way forward. And it, it made me feel kind of hopeful. And um, it, it was a direction that I really, really wanted to go in, but I mm. had no idea where how it would be. And the first thing I experienced after making that vow at the end of the retreat to try and forgive the people who had killed Lucy, the first thing I experienced was murderous rage. Uh, so I, all, that, that makes so much sense to be me, Marion, that, that yeah. um, when you open your heart at, towards forgiveness, uh, one of my teachers said, forgiveness works no matter what. Either you forgive or you see what's in the way. Absolutely, and that's what the retreat—that's it, and that's what the retreats were all about. Was and that's what all the these paths I've followed, and, and Lucy's path—they all actually are about trying to um, get out of the way with all the stuff that stops you from seeing the bigger place somehow, where these things can happen, where we can be healed. And uh, and I always experienced on the retreats this, you know, if I was feeling, I went through a huge feeling of grief on one retreat and the way, the, the, the feeling of release, the feeling of 
movement towards the bigger place was when I connected with the reality that millions of people have experienced bereavement by murder. And in that moment, I, I was released from this little isolating place, which was so painful and seemingly um, endless. And mm. so it's that kind of movement from a, sh a small little place that's very, very painful and a you know, you can't bear being in it any longer, but you just don't know how to get out of it, to suddenly realizing that the way out is to open your heart towards the pain, you know, to feel the pain, but realize that this pain is not only just your pain. It's the pain of being human, the pain of being alive. You know, we cannot end today without talking about all the work that you've done in prisons. And I and I just want to mention that um, you, the Wests are the people that that murdered your sister. Um, the the man of the couple killed himself, and the woman refused contact. But it was interesting to me that the letter you wrote to her, you didn't send until you were prepared to receive no reply. Uh, you were kind of prepared for any possibility. Um, yeah, that's that true. seemed important mm. to me. Absolutely, because I, I felt that it had to be, I, I really needed it to be an unconditional gesture and not dependent on anything coming back because I was pretty sure that nothing much would come would back. Come back. Mm -hmm. But the reason I sent it was because I, you know, I woke up one morning and I thought, if I don't send this letter and I hear that, that Rosemary West has died in prison, which is what's going to happen one day, she will never be released. It, I would always regret never having sent it because it felt like a seed. And, you know, I was just offering her a, an image, really. I was offering her, uh, I was wishing her well, but I was also acknowledging her anger and her grief and, and the fact that I also experienced these things and that I wanted her to know that because of what had happened I'd had to go on this journey and that that it had led to me want genuinely connecting with her suffering in some way and her well, and her shame. Absolutely but then that to me, leads kind of directly to the work you've done in prisons. I know you've done a lot of different kinds of restorative justice work, but let's talk about your prison work because to me, I saw a really direct link. You could not, uh, she was not open to that process whatsoever. And yet I, I feel you found, you found a way to encourage that in other people in some way because of your ability to open your heart to people who had done a lot of harm. And I wonder if you'd be willing to read the, the um, section of your book uh, about Lucy's little bag, uh, because that touched my heart so much. <laughs> yes, well, very briefly, Lucy made a little bag um, when she was eight and I was 12 out of wool that she got from hedges and and she went through the whole process of converting the sort of massive dirty wool into a little woven bag and I began to take that into prisons with me 
So from the book, I'll read. One day I was sitting in my hut, holding Lucy's little woven bag and praying about my work with the Forgiveness Project. I remembered Lucy using thorns to extract thorns from the mess of the raw fleece. Somehow the bag felt alive as if it had work to do. I began to take it with me into prisons and hand it around as I told our story. It was her gift to me and now it is shared with others as something to hold and contemplate. The feeling that comes from holding Lucy's little bag is quietly spreading, softly, the spirit that delights to do no evil is truly at work in the realms of forgiving. Once I witnessed a man in Highdown prison gazing lovingly at the bad, mar marvelling and not wanting to let go of it and pass it on. He later told me that he didn't usually have experiences like this, but when he had looked at the bag as it rested between his palms, he said there seemed to be light pouring out of it. I told him that Lucy's name means light. The man was Peter Wolfe, who spent over 18 years of his life in prison. It was the first workshop that we facilitated together. We have since worked in many prisons, and he facilitates many of our workshops. He writes, The Forgiveness Project is a huge part of my life and has been a crucial part of my long-term rehabilitation and general well-being. To be doing something so worthwhile not only enhances my own self-worth, but it is of massive benefit for others that we, the Forgiveness Project team, continue to show people that there is another way. You know, there's um, so much talk in, in my circles, I guess I'll say, about mm -hmm. the incredible tragedy of prisons in my country. Uh, so yeah. many people are, uh, there's the people who are there for life, at, you know, with very little to help them heal. And then there are people who are released with no preparation for living differently. And yeah. um, the the terrible shaming and rejection that that goes on. I think that's part of why that story touches me because his heart broke open, and that really led in a different direction in his life. And of course, very moved by you being able to get to that place where you could offer that, where you could share that. Um, a lot of hard, hard work. I know, goes into that level of forgiveness. Um, well, you, you see it so clearly, and it's really great to hear you, the way you speak about your prison system, because that's how I see. I, I just can't see that, that the way we treat people who harm others it, by locking them, them away, punishing them, not giving them any, any means of rehabilitation, um, I can't see how that's going to make anybody into someone who can come out of prison and integrate with the rest of society. It just doesn't make, it just seems totally unimaginative to me and very cruel too. Um, yes, and I would say that my huge part of my own healing has been meeting people who've committed serious harm 
And from a Quaker perspective, we talk that there is that of God in everyone. And I do believe that, or you can say good, that of good in everyone. I really have experienced that so many times that when you approach people with the sense that they have their, you know, deep inside this true nature, this way that just hasn't been nourished or had any opportunity to be expressed it is it truly is there and of course there are some people who can't feel empathy some people who maybe should never be released from prison but many of the people I've met many of whenever I hand the little bag out which I always do in the workshops um the, the atmosphere in the room changes and and everything softens and people begin to connect with their own journey towards healing they begin to see that they have been victims that they're that they have become perpetrators that that it's not coming out of nowhere this behavior and making even that connection is huge and they do see that as Peter Wolf said that there is another way and this work we do is so it's so deeply inspiring to me I've been involved in it for 15 years now I don't you know not all the time but our project that we do with prisons is called restore and I've thought a lot about what that word can mean and in terms of people who've harmed others or have committed crimes that have harmed people so I think I, th- I think this is such a powerful place for us to end our time together today. Um, so much more needs to happen uh, to rehumanize both sides of that equation. I think you know, and not to mention um, the ways we all sort of uh, dehumanize each other. I'm very, uh, I've been thinking a lot about that lately. So I really thank you for giving that voice today, Marion. Well, thank you, Cheryl, for inviting me. It's a real honor to, to be able to speak in America because I yes. feel connected with what's going on with you there. And I just hope that, that you will find a way forward that's peaceful. I, I agree. You can find Marion at uh, either if you sit very still at Amazon or at caitlin.bartelson at jkp.com. Next week, I'll be talking with Dorothy and Martin Hellman, the authors of A New Map for Relationships, Creating True Love at Home and Peace on the Planet, a continuation of our conversation today in a way. This has been Good Mm. Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. 
The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.